Are you looking for ways to attract and retain private pay clients? Thryzer is a payment platform for therapists built to help clients automatically tap into their out-of-network benefits and save on therapy up front. Check out our special link, join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist, and use the code modern therapists to activate $2,500 in free payments with Thryzer. Therapy Notes, the number one trusted EHR among mental health professionals, just keeps getting better and better. With legendary customer support 24 hours a day, seven days a week, they're giving you all the tools you need to succeed, whether you're a solo clinician or a group practice. Try them free for two months using promo code MODERN today. You're listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide, where therapists live, breathe, and practice as human beings. To support you as a whole person and a therapist, here are your hosts, Kurt Widhelm and Katie Vernoy. Welcome back, Modern Therapists. This is the Modern Therapist Survival Guide, the podcast that addresses all the different areas that come up in therapists' lives. I'm Kurt Widhelm. My co-host is Katie Vernoy. And if you would do us a favor and go to wherever you listen to podcasts, then leave us a review and a rating. That definitely helps us out. And here on the show, we definitely try to address all sorts of diversity issues. We've had a few episodes on therapists of different racial backgrounds, and today we're joined by Dr. Joel Schwartz. He's a psychologist in Rolling Hills Estates, California, to talk about another kind of diversity. This is neurodiversity, and he's going to explain to us today how to make a neurodiverse friendly practice and work with clients from the misunderstood. So thank you very much for joining us today, Dr. Schwartz. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to this. So are we. And it's Joel, you and I are friends. This is always good to be able to chat. I love our our discourse and I'm really excited about the conversation because I know you and Kurt have slightly different perspectives on autism spectrum disorders and neurodiversity. So it'll be really interesting. But as we always ask everyone, who are you and what are you putting out in the world? Let's start there. I'm a clinical psychologist, but my tagline is I work with the misunderstood. So usually that includes uh, people who are neurodivergent, ADHD, autism, a psychotic spectrum, also a lot of depressed individuals, a lot of trauma, really just kind of anybody who doesn't feel understood. I, I had a client a while back when discussing how she understood me. She summed it up better than I ever could. She said, you just don't want people to be alone in the world. Mm. And I thought that was just a fantastic way of, of uh, conceptualizing it. And the neurodiverse folks that I work with, neurodivergent folks that I work with, they often aren't alone physically, but because they have been conditioned so much to not be themselves, the isolation is even more painful. You know, it's it's almost better to be alone than it is to not be authentic in a group of people. And so that's what I'm trying to bring out into the world is understanding of different ways of being and how, how these ways are not only functional, but also good for humanity. And if we can accept people for their differences, uh, we all benefit as a community, a society, a species. So Katie introduced you as having a different perspective than me. And while I'm sure that this episode will allow that to unfold, <laughs> where do you see you creating space that maybe traditional therapy or traditional psychologist has not done this? I think that 
we have all to some degree bought into the DSM medical model, which has a fundamental belief that there is a normal and divergence from normal is disordered. And it creates this kind of Harry Potter sorting hat of diagnoses. And it's probably just as magical as the sorting hat. Um, <laughs> I would probably say the sorting hat might be even more accurate, especially because when it comes to the neurodivergent people, their internal experience of the world is never taken into account. It's always just the overt symptoms. And the overt symptoms are often masked or they are different coping mechanisms that aren't recognized by the, you know, DSM proper. You know, I come from a humanistic psychology standpoint where phenomenology experience is really the area of treatment and the area of understanding. And so in doing work where lived experience and experience is so important in and of itself, a whole different way of being with people develops. I like that there's this perspective on being able to understand people and meet them where they are to really dig into their their internal experience, how they view the world. And, and that, to me, makes a lot of sense. I, I want to actually just go a little bit broader to start out with, because I think there's there's two words that I'm hearing you say, neurodiversity and neurodivergent. And mm-hmm. I, I want to make sure just for the audience that everybody really understands what we're talking about. So how would you define neurodiversity, neurodiverse, neurodivergent, like there's, I'm, I'm sure. hearing some, some, some tenderness around these words, and I want to make sure we're all on the same page. That's right. That's right. Every social justice movement and neurodiversity uh, is a social justice movement in, at its heart, um, you know, has its accepted terms and definitions. So neurodiversity is a fact of life, just like sexual diversity racial diversity, uh, diversity of height, diversity of eye color, diversity of hair color. We all have different brains. I think that's a fact we can all accept. Yes. But where neurodiversity kind of comes in is this idea that those differences, just like height differences and eye differences and skin differences, developed through natural selection for a reason. And that these differences might actually be something okay and important and not necessarily wrong or disordered. So neurodiversity is a fact of life. Neurodiverse is kind of a noun of of we are all neurodiverse people. We're a group of neurodiverse people. And the term neurodivergent means somebody who diverges from what's kind of culturally accepted as neurologically normal. And those might be different neurotypes or neuro-minorities, such as ADHD, autism, psychotic spectrum disorder. Uh, some people would place like Down syndrome and even uh, brain changes due to physical and psychological trauma in that category as well. How does this kind of stuff show up in the office? I know for me in my practice, I have several years of having worked very intensely with people in the autism spectrum. In my pre-license years, this is an area of my practice that I often get a lot of referrals to. So at least with autism spectrum disorders, I am very familiar with how it comes across in the office. But Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. from kind of a broader perspective for people who aren't so familiar, how do you see these clients 
showing up in offices, the issues that they may face in a traditional therapy office, and how it might be coming across to clinicians who don't have quite the experience? It's a difficult question to answer because there are different categories of neurodivergence. Most ADHD people will have probably been identified as children, except if they're women, often they have not been, they've been looked over, and also if they tend to be highly intelligent and did well in school. There's a blindness to what their struggles have been and and what their compensatory mechanisms are and how engaging in these compensatory mechanisms takes all of their psychological resources. And so they might come in, you know, empty and anxious and obsessional and and the things that we kind of see a, a lot. And we have to be able to look past the mood and the symptom and really get into what is causing this. And sometimes it's not even immediate. And and there are a number of clients who I work with who even after, you know, three or four months and being specially trained in this, I'm like, oh my gosh, this person is really ADHD. They're on the spectrum. We need to get an assessment. But it's underneath so many layers of masking that it's really hard to see. With autism and people who may be on the schizophrenia spectrum, and that includes people with maybe kind of subtle schizoid or schizotypal personality configurations, usually you'll see just a ton of different diagnoses. They went and they got diagnoses from everybody, and it's all different. And the underlying neurological difference has never been addressed or identified. And so when when these folks are coming into your office, how do you create a different experience, a more welcoming experience? Because I know that you're very radically accepting and you're, you're in what you've already talked about is that you want to see from their perspective. And so even getting to a diagnosis is not necessarily the end goal, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But what do you think that, that you offer in your office that shifts the experience for them? Because I think that's, that can be very telling for therapists is kind of how do you approach this where you're more welcoming of, of kind of the whole spectrum of neurodiversity and you can connect with neurodivergent clients. Sure. Using kind of an analogy from LGBTQ movements, there's this assumption of heteronormity that they see everywhere that uh, they're going to go out in the world and the form is automatically going to say, are you male or female or Mm -hmm. are you straight or gay? And the, the colors in between all of those aren't considered in, in many places in society. And I'd say that the therapist's office is the same way as the environments that we create assume uh, neurotypicality. And so I try to come from the alternate perspective that I assume that anybody coming into my office may be neurodivergent to some extent. And and I think a lot of people who do, who feel misunderstood, do have subtle forms of neurodivergent. Some might call themselves highly sensitive people, empaths, you know, all these words that people use to describe what I say at its heart are kind of neurological sensitivities and differences. So it, it starts from my website. You know, I have... Uh, which isn't up yet, but it will be. But when I have my <laughs> when I have my website up, there will be uh, 
sound, video, and written instruction, because I assume that not everybody can get the information in the same way. Mm. There will be a direct uh, introduction to office procedures and some of the social norms in my office, because I don't assume that everybody will get that right away. And then when they come in, I am trying to be very aware of light, smell, sound. Uh, so I have a, a radio, a Bose radio, internet radio in my office, and there's a sign there that says, feel free to change the channel or turn it off if it's bothering you, because some people have sound sensitivities. When I bring them into my office, I show them a, a vast array of uh, stim equipment of all senses. I have a weighted blanket. I have various manipulatives. Uh, I don't have it yet, but I'm planning on adding various jars of different scents that people can use to kind of ground themselves and smell. And then I also allow them to kind of adjust the lighting as necessary to make them the most comfortable. And I think when you begin with the sensory, you begin to learn a lot about how people take in the world and how they mediate sensory information and make sense of it. And those are really some important clues to whether you're dealing with neurodivergence or not. Thryzer is a payment platform designed for out-of-network therapy. As a therapist, you would use Thryzer to charge clients for sessions and collect your full rate up front. From the client's perspective, Thryzer links to their health plan, so insurance claims are automatically submitted for them upon every charge. From there, Thryzer manages the claims end-to-end -end so that your clients don't have to worry about manually submitting super bills or getting on calls with insurance. The best part? Thryzer allows clients to only pay their co-insurance portion for sessions, while Thryzer covers the rest of your fee and waits for reimbursement on their behalf. They also offer you an instant benefits calculator for free, allowing you to provide upfront transparency to prospective clients on their out-of-network coverage. Therapists only pay a standard 3% credit card processing fee per session with no additional fees. Visit join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist to get started and use our promo code modern therapists to receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. And a couple of concrete examples on this that have come up in my practice for those of you who aren't familiar with clients who appear with these presentations, even things like the lighting that Joel brought up, that fluorescent lighting can be irritating to a lot of people just hearing the hum. But when a neurodivergent client who has particular sound sensitivities, what we might find is just kind of annoying background hum that goes away after a few moments can become deafening or extremely distracting in these situations. What I particularly like about what Joel is bringing up here, though, is the concrete instructions, because I had a client several years ago who really highlighted that when there's a difference of what the expectations are, when a client who takes the world very literally is given kind of vague instructions that it can become overwhelming or just something where it's easier to not do anything at all than it is to try and guess and be wrong. 
And the way that this came up was this particular client had never been to therapy before. And so sat down in my waiting room, looked around and saw that there was a couple of keys for the bathroom hanging on the wall and a bunch of light switches to turn on the call lights to different offices. But having never been to therapy before, this client described it as, it's not that much different than just entering into an escape room. That <laughs> there's just a bunch of things that I'm supposed to figure out. That's so funny. I think it's it's something where being able to be concrete, I think I just recently, and this is these were not neurodivergent clients, but I recently had some new clients that were very new to therapy come in. And I think we can make a lot of assumptions that that people know what it means to be in therapy. And if they've only ever watched it on TV or in the movies, like they're not going to necessarily know, like, I click this light, I leave this key alone, I I make this phone call or I can schedule in this way. Like I think being so concrete is helpful for everyone. But if 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 when if we're looking at kind of the neurodivergent population, I think starting with that assumption makes it very comfortable. Because I, I think there was recently a client that I didn't start with that assumption and, and I had to backtrack pretty dramatically to be able to meet that person where they were. And so I think it's it's something where when whenever I talk with you, Joel, I always really see this this notion of of this radical acceptance of kind of I'm gonna see you, I'm gonna make sure that you don't feel uncomfortable, that you don't have to not necessarily that you don't have to advocate and ask questions, but that, mm-hmm. that there's not there's not a baseline that I'm assuming I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to like, like I'm coming, like, like I'm coming from outer space and I have to, to sort through and understand something. It's like getting into that level of detail of this is how this works. And I think so many people shorthand that, you know, and, and I'm thinking it related to like people saying, I want to be happy. And it's like, well, what does that mean? And then when they actually try to define it, they can't define it. And so it's like, right, well, how can we right. read something that you can't define? But I think being able to meet people exactly where they are and accept them as they are is, is so empowering. And, and, I, and I can see that being a, a way to have neurodivergent clients be able to come into the office and feel heard and seen and respected because they don't come in feeling like they don't know what to do. There's a really fantastic uh, writer, an autistic writer and advocate in the neurodiversity movement named Nick Walker. He has a blog, uh, neurocosmopolitan.com. I forget which article it is specifically, but he said something to the effect of uh, power is is being able not to learn or, or having the position in society to not have to learn. And one of the themes that I hear over and over again is how much neurodivergent people have to learn about neurotypical people in order to fit in and the extreme amounts of effort that they go through in a moment-to-moment uh, basis in order to make neurotypical people comfortable. Mm-hmm. And what they're asking for us to do is just learn about them from their perspective and take a little bit of effort to meet them halfway. And if we can do that, the amount of anxiety and depression just melts away really quickly in some cases. I've had some cases where it was just years and years of, of trauma and validation. And within, you know, four sessions of being affirmative, they're, you know, jumping up and down and, and being happy and, and making major changes in their life just because they, one person gave them permission to be who they are. In my experience, and I did ABA work for about three years in shadowing, doing public schools, sitting in a lot of classrooms. Mm-hmm. And now as my own kids enter into elementary school, 
I do really see kind of this difference as the longer that kids with neurodiverse backgrounds, whether it's autism, ADHD, whatever it might be. Neurodivergent backgrounds. <laughs> neurodivergent backgrounds. Thank you for the correction. Sure. <laughs> uh, the younger kids tend to be more accepting of it. And yes. I don't know if this is a, you know, a top-down sort of situation where it's the adults who are kind of singling out the kids who have the quirky behaviors, the ones that are unexpected, the ones that make up our practices, that further isolates them from the neurotypical kids. And so typically by about third, fourth, fifth grade, definitely by middle school, the neurotypical kids have largely excluded those who come from this background. And I'm wondering how you suggest in kind of this environment, because you and I both know that ABA is going to be prescribed to these kids far <laughs> often than not. And, and the answer is, if, if it's not working, this kid needs more ABA. And if it is working, then this ABA is working and more ABA will work more. But in a lot of ways, this does create kind of this treatment method that is something that further separates them out and puts all of the responsibility onto the identified client. Well said, yes. The answer to your question it goes into the social justice aspects of this and the social movement of this. If we look at the history of the way other minorities have been discriminated against and isolated, uh, whether it be racial minorities or uh, sexual orientation minorities, we see really similar themes. And as soon as acceptance and representation occurs, the next generation starts to be like, oh, this thing isn't so weird. I can just be okay with this. And we're already seeing it. People are uh, uh, reporting that as a result of having a nonverbal autistic person normalized on Sesame Street, neurotypical children are like, oh, it's just like, I forget the name of the character. It's just like this one. I know that if I go next to this person and hand flap with them, it'll be fun and it'll be okay. And then everybody's laughing and nobody's judging. And... I think that's kind of beautiful. And, and that goes back to, you know, stereotypes and representation and, and the stereotypes that we have of, of especially autistic people, but even ADHD people and people with psychotic disorders in the media are highly stereotypical and negative. They're often just the butt of the jokes instead of part of the humor of being alive. You know, we see it in the Big Bang Theory and we see it in neurotypical. The neurotypical has done a little bit of a better job. I mean, neurotypical, atypical um, has done a little bit of a better job than I think other shows have done. And a lot of it is because autistic people are demanding that their voices be heard and that they be consulted with when these characters are being created or even actually playing these characters because there are a ton of autistic people who uh, are great actors who are out of work because they uh, might flub an interview, uh, but you tell them to uh, embody somebody else and they can do it uh, amazingly. On the flip side of this, <laughs> does a radical acceptance approach collude with behaviors that may not be healthy, may not be adaptive, may violate the rights in the physical space of other people in their environments? 
all three of those things require <laughs> an individual answer. <laughs> <laughs> so the last one you said uh, encroaches on you know somebody else's safety. That's absolutely an area of intervention. If this person is throwing somebody else's property, you know, punching them, hitting them, obviously that's not acceptable and that needs some intervention. Uh, the question is, how do we intervene? And when intervention is solely behavioral and doesn't take into account the emotional vulnerabilities, the sensory vulnerabilities, the feelings of the individual beneath the actual behavior, you're just leading to a repression and a dissociation. That doesn't mean that we don't target the behavior, but I would argue we need to target it more holistically. And behaviorism can be part of that, but it can't be the only thing. Not only does Therapy Notes combine billing, scheduling, notes, secure messaging, group telehealth, and more into one streamlined platform, they're also always adding new features and forms to their library. So no matter your specialty, Therapy Notes has you covered. Learn more at therapynotes.com and use promo code MODERN for two months free. What do you mean by by targeting the behavior holistically? Because I think in, in my understanding, my limited understanding of, of kind of the behavioral work I've mm -hmm. done, because I worked as a, a childcare worker and I've, you know, I talked to a lot of folks that have the ABA background. To me, it seems like at least how it's currently practiced, ABA it, or, or other behavioral models do take in the perspective and the, and the environment and, and do have more of that holistic approach. And so what are you seeing that that's not happening or that might be harmful? Because I think, you know, you've kind of publicly talked about kind of the dangers mm -hmm. of ABA. And I think to me, that's not been how I've seen it necessarily yeah. in practice. Yeah. So uh, I'll give you a great example. Kid throws a tantrum in the middle of class. An ABA person might say, okay, well, the antecedent is they're in class. Um, they're overwhelmed behavior. And the consequence is that they get to escape class if they throw the tantrum. Uh, so what we need to do is uh, not give them an escape. So oftentimes what will happen is the person will be restrained or the person uh, will be separated in a way that is painful to them or they'll be put in another environment, uh, which is sort of an escape. But, but oftentimes you'll see uh, people stepping in and holding them down. And if we don't actually get to know what is this person reacting to, we can't effectively change the environment. If we're just demanding that they change their behavior and we give a different consequence, often what is learned is repressing the anxiety or the fear or whatever happens that causes the behavior. So if we don't address that in and of itself, it's kind of an incomplete intervention. And what often happens in ABA is there's this assumption, oh, the behavior is, is gone. Well, we've, we've managed it. We're done. But we never go back and say, well, what, what is the emotion? What is the experience? And if you talk to behaviorists, they'll, they'll agree with you. They'll say, yeah, we're focused on behavior. That's what ABA is. It's a behavioral intervention. And I'm not against behavioral interventions. 
What I'm against is behavioral interventions in isolation, focusing on behavior as the end-all, be-all goal. And I'll even jump in and say that there's bad ABA and there's good ABA. And part of this is just with the way that professionals are often introduced to this without really understanding, even in your example, but Mm -hmm. even the behaviorists in kind of the traditional way that I'm seeing them be trained, they're not even looking at their own emotions going into how this affects the implementation of these behavior goals. Right. And so there's a lot of families that I end up creating behavioral goals where I'm working with the children and talking about the goals are really about expressing anger in the correct way and being rewarded for it. And it's always kind of met with an initial, like, very confused sort of look of like, what? Like, you want me to get angry? And and I say, yes, because the goal is not to prevent emotions. The goal is to, you know, kind of come from this internal world of being able to appropriately encourage what would be as opposed to punish what shouldn't be. And I think that this is really where I kind of got burnt out in that ABA world because so much of it was just focused on consequence only oriented action and not being able to look into that antecedent and and behavioral aspect of, you know, there is other options other than just don't do that. Yeah. And I'll throw in an other major concern that I have, which is that when the goals are being set by neurotypical people who don't understand the neurodivergence, yes, you can get those goals, but nobody ever questioned, should we be having these goals? Are these goals really uh, for the person or is this for our comfort? And our acceptance of what may or may not be normal. I think there's, there's kind of, I have mixed feelings because I think in the, the, with the behavioral folks that I talk to, I really hear this, the emotional connection there. I hear trying to understand from the person's point of view and setting up behavioral plans or cognitive behavioral plans or whatever that align with who they are and, and kind of, the goals that I hope are collaboratively set. So I can't speak intelligently to that completely, but I think that's not been my experience. I think for me, the, well, the, well, the acceptance. Because how do you do that for a nonverbal person? And how do you do that for a child who doesn't really know themselves yet and is basing their experience on the adults around them? And the adults have, you know, a, it comes from a good place of I want this person to be a functional member of society, but our core assumptions of what a functional member of society are, are often incorrect or they're Mm -hmm. based on, you know, your personhood is how well you can do a job and fit into kind of an American capitalist economy. And so I can give you an example of oftentimes behaviors will target kind of the obsessionality and special interests of autistic people. And I have one client who understands the world in themselves through a specific pop culture medium. I don't want it to you know, yeah, give it away. 
the behaviorist, and he's working with one of the best behavioral companies out there uh, with some people who are really well known in the field. And they have been working on trying to extinguish this obsessionality and not listen to him. And, you know, I, I spent some time listening to him, playing with him on this, and got to know quite a lot about him. I brought in his parents and I tried to explain to them how what he's doing is expressing himself in a very deep way. And they got very weepy and they said, I don't even know who my son is. Mm. And I have heard this so many times now from parents who went into uh, behavioral therapies because they were told to, they have no clue who their children are underneath because they spend, you know, 10 to 40 hours a week in modifying behaviors and that invalidation in and of itself is harmful. And yeah, and and this is exactly what I was what I was trying to get to is there is acceptance and validation and connection that I think is really important. I think there are also realities around how society will respond to some of these things until we can make those changes, right? And so mm-hmm. to me it's it's something where I I want to connect and support, you know, and, and do those things, but I, I don't want to necessarily set someone up to be complete, you know, repeatedly rejected or, or not included because mm-hmm. society's not there yet. And so how do we balance that? Because I think being able to, to hand flap with somebody or, or, you know, I think certainly having the ability to, to adjust our environments and, and be very accepting, I think, that feels good, but I know that there's going to be misunderstanding and I know that there's going Mm -hmm. to be pain and harm that could come from those things continuing. And, and so I, I don't, yeah, I, I, I'm not saying this well, but I'm trying to get to like, how do we balance? Here's what society, where society currently is. Here's where we want to go. Here's how I understand you and validate you. And here's how we help you navigate the society as it is now. I think it goes to, how all of us are authentic in society is we all have feelings and things we do and ways of being that aren't acceptable. And we all have to come to our own understanding of how authentic do I want to be mm-hmm. and what are the consequences? And, and a, a good analogy is, you know, have this conversation with a gay person 40 years ago you can't hold your lover's hand in public or else you're going to be beat up. Yeah, that's true. But we have to validate that that's fine and that the person is still okay being gay and they could hold their lover's hand at home as much as they want. Yeah. But we don't pathologize that. We don't say that they're wrong for wanting to do that, for, for being out in public and wanting to give their, uh, their, their significant other a kiss and hug them when they're feeling anxious. But there's a consequence to that, and we have to make them aware of what the societal consequences are. But we don't make the decision for them about what is acceptable and what Got isn't. It. Got it. And there's also a sort of understanding that comes along with this. Uh, For any of you out there who can't start the day without your cup of coffee or your morning yoga or whatever that might be, and, you know, you just justify whatever, you know, happens in the day. Oh, I didn't make it to Starbucks to get my cappuccino this morning, and that's why I'm off. That for a lot of people from neurodivergent backgrounds, that this is equivalent to some of the feelings that they might experience with not being allowed to stim. 
or to be able to engage in some of their self-regulatory behaviors. And we can justify for ourselves, oh, I didn't get my blast of caffeine, and that <laughs> excuses me, but because that looks different, or because that's kind of annoying, or because that's unexpected, that this is a level of the acceptance that we're asking for in making the world a, a better place for clients coming in and, and needing to be understood. So our guest today is Dr. Joel Schwartz. Uh, thank you very much for coming in and, and broadening out this, this conversation. Where can people find out more about you? Uh, there will be a website uh, soon. <laughs> <laughs> I, I am on LinkedIn, Joel Schwartz, comma, PsyD, P-S-Y-D. I have a Facebook page. I run a Facebook group called Neurodiversity Affirmative Therapists. Uh, so if a therapist wants to join that, but be warned, you will have uh, your fundamental assumptions challenged and oftentimes people will join and when they engage in kind of discussions that feel not affirmative or ableist they're called on it um, so it is a challenging place to be but if you want to come and listen for a while and try to understand how this kind of thing works uh, you'll find a pretty amazing community of people We'll have all that stuff on our show notes. Thanks, Joel, for being here and, and, and sharing with us. We really appreciate it. And you can find our show notes on our website, mtsgpodcast.com. While you're there, check out the Therapy Reimagined 2019 conference. Our tickets are going on sale like literally any second now. And it's going to be two days, October 18th and 19th in Universal City, California. This is the Modern Therapist Conference. Presented by Simple Practice. And until next time, I'm Kurt Woodhelm with Katie Bernoy and Dr. Joel Schwartz. Thank you for listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. Learn more about who we are and what we do at mtsgpodcast.com. You can also join us on Facebook and Twitter. And please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of our episodes. Remember to check out Thryzer. They are passionate about making out-of-network therapy work for everyone. Clients save upfront on therapy while therapists earn their full rate. Get started in minutes on join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist and use the promo code modern therapists and receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. Thanks so much to our partner Therapy Notes, the highest rated practice management solution for behavioral health. Don't forget, using promo code MODERN gets you two free months.